0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. This is very convenient and you can get started in under 24 hours, it's not self-help. It's professional counseling, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. These are licensed professional counselors specialized in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, you name it. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Best of all, as a listener of this program, you get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp dot com slash other ppl join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health again that's better help help dot com slash other ppl all right okay hello hey how's it going I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you. I appreciate you listening. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have Joseph DePrisco on the program today. He is the author of a novel called The Good Family Fitzgerald. It is out there now from Rare Bird Books. It was the official May pick of the TNB Book Club. I'm a little late in getting Joseph's episode up. I apologize, but he is here. And my God, has he lived a life. He's He's, got, he's one of these guys that has a life story. That's sort of uh, stranger than fiction in many ways. And he's lived a lot of different lives and he's just wonderful in conversation. So I'm excited to have Joseph DePrisco here and to share that conversation with you in just a second. His novel, again, is called The Good Family Fitzgerald. Uh, I should mention that my dad really liked The Good Family Fitzgerald. Every once in a while, he'll text me and he'll tell me, you know, because he's a member of the book club. He'll be like, oh, I really like this one. He really likes The Good Family Fitzgerald by Joseph DePrisco. Today's episode is brought to you by Doubleday, publisher of the novel Pizza Girl by Jean Kiong Frazier. Pizza Girl is a wildly original coming-of-age story about a pregnant pizza delivery girl who becomes obsessed with one of her customers. Named a most anticipated book of 2020 by Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Elle Time, People, BuzzFeed, Bustle, and more. The New York Times calls Pizza Girl fresh, funny, and bittersweet. Pizza Girl by Jean Kiong Frazier, available now from Doubleday. Go get Pizza Girl. Order yourself a pizza girl. Do you know what I'm saying? A copy of the book, pizza girl. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, this was recorded a while back. I like to, you know, throw an asterisk up just because so much has is happening in uh, the United States these days. Things are changing so fast. Context is shifting so fast. So Joseph and I talked a little bit ago and uh, it was just a delight. Super interesting conversation and I'm pleased to uh, proceed now with that. So here he is, folks. This is Joseph DePrisco and his new novel, One More Time, is called The Good Family Fitzgerald.
1: So when I was 10 years old, I'm walking down a road in East Iceland, Long Island, with my father and my little brother. It's a Sunday. It's late spring. And I looked down the road to my grandparents' house. They had a farm. You know, pigs, and donkeys, and chickens, and, uh, watermelon, and strawberry, everything. What a lovely farm. What kind of, what, what city kid doesn't love a farm? So walking down, walking along the road and the house, we see a whole slew of police cars surround the house where my grandparents lived. And my father says to me, go back to the house. Don't take no shit from nobody and he heads off into the woods, and he's gone in the wind. He was in flight from the FBI, from uh, New, York, New York City Police. He was a con man, a bookmaker, a, a confidential informant, and he uh, got involved in lots of shady stuff. I didn't know any of this. I 10 years old. I I find out a lot, he eventually surfaces in all places in the world in San Francisco. Uh, We get on a plane, my mother, uh, my little brother, get on a plane from, uh, it was Idlewild then, pre-GFK, first time i have been on a plane, land in San Francisco. And, of course, he's not meeting us at the gate. Somehow we get to some gas station and there he is hiding in the car. To get in the car there 's no there 's no explanation what, what we 're doing there nobody 's saying anything. I mean and for my family, you know, there are only two two set points in volume there 's silence and screaming so there's no, there 's no story told about what we 're doing here in California. All I know is i 've left my friends they don 't have the right kind of pizza can 't get a bagel i 'm lonely and miserable. But well, we're in California. Years and years later, I find out, this is in my, I can't even remember when I find out the story. But after I wrote uh, my first memoir, Subway to California, I'm doing some Google search. And I find online all these transcripts of uh, trials. Superior Court, Supreme uh, Superior Court trials in, uh, in the state of New York, where my father is the star witness in these cop corruption cases, and it all becomes clear, what the hell went on here. He was out. Of, he he skipped town. He eventually got caught, but he skipped town because he was implicated in all this police corruption. He was uh, he was a bookmaker. He was uh, setting up other bookmakers to be framed. So that he could, so his bookmaking operation could could operate. Now, out of that story, uh, that's that's my sort of uh, primal myth. Uh, That's where I began as a writer. That's where I began as a person, I guess. Understanding that it's about flight, it's about abandonment, it's about secrecy, Uh, and uh, and there was, as I say. One of the the things that I'm one of those kind of kids who ask questions all the time, never got any answers. But the stock response from the old man was, what are you writing a book? Okay.
0: (laughs) You're like, actually. actually." (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, you know, that's an idea, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Don't push your luck.
0: (laughs) I mean, and if if anything's going to make you a writer, my God. Like, uh, you know, walk into grandma and grandpa's farm see a bunch of cops and your dad just bolts off into the woods
1: and he's gone you don't know where he is for months damn uh, uh, and then there was a little and then he he settles in becomes a truck driver tries to lead a cleaner life um eventually becomes you love this what we used to be called in the papers a teamster official perfect right yeah for milk drivers um and he's but he he gets he's he's in the crosshairs of the FBI for his entire life when I uh, also later got some FOIA records uh, where I find out you know most of the pages are are redacted because it's all about you know confidential informants and, uh, and uh, privacy what they call them, sources of uh, sources and methods that they they don't want to reveal but what it is is it's sort of a blank slate about his past now. My mother and my father were tremendous liars. They were genius when it came to not telling the truth or not answering a question. Uh, And, you know, I think about that sometimes lately now that they're gone. Well, you know, that's probably where I got some of my first inspiration to start telling stories.
0: I was going (laughs) to say, you were were trained by the best.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They, and so there we are my, you know my every, everybody we knew was involved was going to jail coming out of jail. My mother's favorite kind of event was a, a, a come, going to prison party or a coming out of prison party. And she would bring she made great cream puffs, and great cheesecake fantastic and that would be the hit of the party. and these these guys that that I knew that I worked with uh, and everybody in the family. My brother was in San Quentin for ten years. Uh, my other brother was in reform school. I'm the only person in my family to graduate from high school, and so I was the black sheep because uh, I got <laughs> I got good grades. <laughs> uh, so
0: where where were you in the pecking order? Were you like the middle child, first, or what? what like
1: so, my mother my mother was married to a, a, a boxer, a pugilist, first, and she had three kids. Uh, And then she hooked up with my dad and had two kids. They weren't married. So there's, and she was living by herself in this uh, shotgun apartment on Greenpoint on Humboldt, Humboldt Street, which everybody at Greenpoint knows. The, there she was a single unwed mother with five kids. Tough as shit she and she was gorgeous. If you see pictures of her They, they appear in subway in california they, She was ravishingly beautiful
0: yeah no i saw I saw a picture of her on your website yeah, and she
1: you know, she could square with the best of them took no shit from nobody and so there's uh, so there's great uh, uh i think resources of fortitude and strength and secrecy that that kept the family going for a long time. And that's why, you know, it also explains, you know, why my brother was a, a junkie for a long time. Uh, I think we all—now, for me, see, being the black sheep is a terrible thing to be. Uh, so I wanted to be in both worlds. I wanted to be—the the church was tremendously important to me. I was a good altar boy.
0: The Catholic yes, church.
1: Yes, I was a good altar boy, good kid. But that was it went against. There's something. I mean, I was. I've been. I was suspended or expelled from every school I went to, even as I even as I was a pretty good student. But you know, I had, I had anger issues. I had in college. I got very involved. With, took over the administration building. I. I was. I. I wanted to go. The law always offended me on some level.
0: So, wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. So, you say you took over the administration building. In college, you were, like, engaged yeah. in some sort of uh, protest. Movement.
1: Yeah, all the Vietnam War stuff, yeah. I was very involved in that. But the church always meant something. I lived in a monastery for a while. I was Brother Joseph. Uh, uh, so, I'm, I'm trying to dabble in, in all worlds at the same time. Uh, opened lots of restaurants. Uh, uh, this sounds crazy, I know. This doesn't cohere at all. And at one point... Uh, uh, when you're dealing with a lot of people with a lot of vowels in their names, uh, the way I did routinely, I mean, the restaurants, you know, what's what's the real action in an Italian restaurant? Uh, two guesses. What's going on? So one day I get a call from the FBI, Dave Williams, special agent, uh, don't leave town. You're the prime suspect in a racketeering investigation. Okay. So Brad, let me say this. You really don't ever want to be investigated by the FBI
0: yeah it's something I've tried to avoid.
1: <laughs> it's just not a pleasant experience
0: so wait, what is it what, okay, so let me just i want to stop you for a second just so I can make sure I have my head wrapped around this. Your mother had five kids right she she was uh, with a pugilist and right she, and, and she, they divorced yeah and how many kids did she have with him?
1: Oh uh, three and then two with my dad
0: and you were the eldest of the of your father yeah, yeah no the
1: older brother right?
0: okay, so you're the older brother and then you Wind up, uh, you know, like, uh, finding, I guess, some structure and comfort in the Catholic Church of your youth. Sure. And, and then you go off to college and you find yourself, like, engaged in, uh, you know, what, civil disobedience and war war resistance, which I think, you know, you can, you can draw a line from Catholicism to that. You know, there is absolutely, there is such a thing as left wing Catholicism and, uh,
1: well, I applied for a conscientious objector status. Yeah. So, uh,
0: but then you get into this uh, restaurant thing and you said the action at an Italian restaurant. Uh, that that part of it, I don't quite have clarity on. What does that exactly mean?
1: Well, there's a lot of gambling. There's a lot of
0: uh, horse owning.
1: There's a lot of uh, dealing of one sort or another. And, you know, the people I, uh, I mean, at some point there was a, we invented. A, uh, I got involved in a blackjack team that was uh, led by uh, the very famous Al Francesco. If you ever Google that name, you'll see he's one of the greatest blackjack players of all time. That's not his name, of course, but he started a blackjack team that I became part of when I was working in a restaurant because I was I had a kid and had no money. I was had a teaching assistantship at Cal, so I was broke essentially. And I accepted this this gig, so moved to Vegas, moved to Reno, played cards around the world backed by these uh, big money backers. So eventually you get barred everywhere. Uh, Why, because you're too too good? Well, if I were really excellent, I wouldn't have been, I was good. But you know, I I mean, I showed up at a a casino in South Africa one time. They had my picture right there. Well, there's an international uh, detective agency that tracks uh, card counters. So they, they had that. And so uh that's okay, I think my time is limited here in South Africa. Right. Uh but but not before I killed. I had a great great session here in South Africa.
0: And so you you knew how to count cards. I knew how to count
1: cards on the square. We also had a uh, a computer built in our shoes at one point that uh i mean you know you know the principles of blackjack, it's not you know it's 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 you're calculating probability all the time right um, once a card is dealt you can't come back so you know the the composition of the deck has changed you know that a deck that's rich in tens and nines and aces is good and you know when a deck is rich in fives and threes and eights eh, not so good but i knew the exact composition of every deck that i was playing and i could i could get the read out in the in the soul like my shoe and these specially built shoes that got built in the mission. So, damn, uh, uh, which was a little crazy to do. Uh, taking, uh, taking that, uh, going to Monte Carlo, going through customs. What the hell are these shoes? Uh, <laughs> hard to explain. Uh, I think my, my college girlfriend became a, uh, a, uh, She was a federal investigator. She was an assistant U.S. attorney at the time in Brooklyn. She's still a good friend. And she said, you know, I'm going to have to talk to those customs agents. They should have never let you get through. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I had lots of good, lots of adventures. I was looking for something. I don't know what money for one thing, adventure for another thing. Um, I was writing my dissertation at the time, sort of.
0: What was it about?
1: uh, Mark Twain. Huh. Although I began writing about poetry, I published my first book when I was in graduate school. The poetry, which I, that's really the way I am—a poet—that's where it all begins for me. Was, uh, but Mark Twain became uh, a pivotal figure. He was a great, great figure, and I wrote about the time in the 90s, the 1890s, when he actually became famous, and when all the shit had befanned for him. People, his family were dying. He was going broke, but he was—he uh, was writing these strange books that. You know, if you if you'd asked somebody in the 20th, early 20th century when Mark Twain was an institution with a white suit and everything and paling around with the Rockefellers, uh, you said, well, what is the great book that Mark Twain wrote? Well, he is not, you'd be wrong, probably. It wasn't Huckleberry Finn, it wasn't Tom Sawyer, it wasn't, you know, it was Joan of Arc. He wrote a book about Joan of Arc. It's an awful novel. It's terrible, but it's written by a genius. So it's fascinating. And you could see his financial uh, uh, problems sort of at play in all these narratives that he wrote in the eighteen nineties. So does that speak to my stuff? Yeah. I was I'm always I grew up poor. Uh, money always obsessed me. I hated the idea of being poor. Uh, but there I was being a poet, being a graduate student. Well there's a, I was gonna say. <laughs> well, that goes to the self division stuff, man. That's what That's been my preoccupation trying to figure out who the hell am I? Yeah.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, So how like how okay? You have a father who uh, fled the federal authorities and was a bookie, and went to and turning and...
1: out dirty cops. That was the crucial thing.
0: Yeah, and he was in, yeah.
1: I mean, that was that. This was before Serpico. This was before the internal affairs. This was when the NAP commission was created. And so I mean, these trials are amazing. These uh, and my father was you know he he couldn't answer a, a direct question if his life depended on it the, the transcripts are hilarious they're like reading the so my father was like Abbott and Costello who's on first <laughs> he, he he couldn't answer a direct question or as my mother said he'd lie if the fucking truth was on his side okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> like like, uh, like the Clintonian parsing of like the definition of is and stuff uh, like that. yes
1: that kind of shit exactly oh, I was like there was a great moment when some high you know some you know suit uh, is, is drilling quizzing him he said well if you want to talk about this you were A little bit unclear when you said X, and uh, so was that true? And the old man says, it was true at the time. (laughs) There it (laughs) is.
0: So so just so I'm clear on what he was doing, like he was running a book, but he was also um, informing on dirty cops. So he was a confidential informant for the FBI. Uh, well, after uh, NYPD for the NYPD, and that kind of right. saved his hide. It also allowed him to run his book unimpeded.
1: Right, he was taking out the competition.
0: That's it. Okay, and yeah. then when he fled and he went to San Francisco, why San Francisco? I know San Francisco has a strong Italian American community. Did he have contacts out there?
1: No, he knew nobody. Uh, he, uh, my father, was famously antisocial. But he, you know, honestly, Brett, it is one of the great mysteries. Why the hell they he ended up moving to Berkeley of all the places in the world? Borneo would have been a, a more likely place to land than Berkeley, California.
0: But not you bad. Know? I mean, you could you could you could wind up in a worse spot than Berkeley.
1: Oh no! So what I'm saying, it's great. What an accident that he that he a fortunate accident there. You have a great university, right? A great community, uh, beautiful place. That was miserable there because it was in Brooklyn. Right, Miss Brooklyn, crazy.
0: How old were you? Ten. You're ten. Okay, so you're ten, and you're going to Catholic church in Berkeley. Oh yeah. All right. You probably have some some groovy Catholic priests in Berkeley, I would guess, at that time, or.
1: Uh, I don't remember that many. I you know I got involved in a. I went to a Catholic high school, a boys' Catholic high school, of course, and it was taught by the Christian Brothers. And I became a Christian brother
0: when I graduated from high school. What is a Christian brother? A Christian brother is
1: the largest teaching order in the world after uh, the Jesuits.
0: I was going to say, uh, yeah, because I grew up Catholic, and I have, a, I have a cousins who went to Jesuit school. Right? right. The Jesuits are known to be, that's known to be a good education. They're they're known to be good educators, right?
1: Right. Oh, no, yeah, they're great. That's, the running joke is, you know, uh, about some priest would be he's not Catholic, he's a Jesuit. So that's the way that's the way Francis is uh, always sort of painted into a corner. He's sort of a special figure. So the Jesuits are great. Um, the Christian Brothers teach uh, you know, lower income kids by, by preference. It's about teaching the poor, um, and and so you know there I am. mean you know, I never met a black kid in my life in Brooklyn. At the time, there I am in school with a bunch of black guys, and uh, they become my friends after we have a few fights, We work it out. Uh, and I feel at home in, in this Catholic school. I feel great. It was a horrible school I mean, academically, pedagogically. It was very backward. But for me, I felt great. I said, this is what I want to do. I want to teach. So I ended up teaching for 20 years. In fact, the best teacher I ever had. In my entire life, all through graduate school, it was a uh, Christian brother uh, at, at my high school. He was a great teacher, Just, and I, I learned lessons from him that I used throughout my entire career.
0: How was he your teacher? How was he, he your teacher in graduate school?
1: No, not in graduate school. I'm saying, in compar- he, you know, only in uh, I'm saying in high school, he was the example that I used when I taught. Wow. His, his his method, but he has limitations. Like the time when I was a senior, I remember this vividly. Uh, I started writing some poems and I gave him some poems to read and uh, brother I call him Brother Paul uh, Brother Paul reads them and he says he has a question for me he says uh, what makes you think these are poems and I felt so bad for him that he didn't see the brilliance of these poems <laughs> that they were fantastic that he couldn't understand that so well, you know, he has his limitations. I just ran into him at a funeral not too long ago. I, I, tell, I, I told him to his face, he was the best teacher I ever had. He yeah. was good to do. He was yeah. good to do.
0: I think we all have probably like a one or two of those, if we're lucky. Like, I think I, I had my best teacher ever in sixth grade. Wow. If I'm thinking of a teacher that really, like, put me on a new vector, you know, and, like, changed my head around, that was probably it. And thank goodness, you know. Um, but... Uh, after that, I'm trying to. Maybe I was less receptive to it or something. I don't know what it was about him, but he was the one who got me reading and all, and and all that. So, uh, well,
1: well, his trick as a teacher is a total illusion. He, he 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 made you think that he didn't say a word during the entire class, that it was all you, but it was a total illusion. Uh, he was able to shape the conversation, shape the discussion, take it in the way. That needed to be taken, and that was the trick I used uh, throughout my, all my, my career teaching, Which I, had, I had a great time. I taught middle school, I taught high school, I taught college, I taught after college, um, uh, and and I you know I'm still in touch with students uh, every probably every day I get an email from a former student. I have been in the classroom for 12 years, something like that, but I'm still in touch with uh, former students. Uh, it's great. High school is great. High school is where it's at. Yeah, Everything's everything's on the line in high school. They wear their feelings on their sleeve. They wear them on your sleeve. Uh. <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> I kind of feel like as a parent, I've said this uh, to my wife many times, I'm sort of like, I kind of feel like if we're going to push to get the best possible education for our kids, I think junior high and high school are the most important in college I'm lessing, I'm less, I care less about college. I, like that was my experience of it anyway. I learned the most I ever learned probably between sixth and like 10th grade. And then yeah. after that, I sort of lost interest. But if you don't have those years nailed down, if you're not, if those aren't productive years, I feel like it's hard to make up for it or something. I don't know.
1: Well, I think that's, that's, that's so important. I, I ended up writing a couple of books about child development, uh, Field Guide to the American Teenager, and another book about integrity of in kids. And, and for me, one of the great lessons, uh, you know, and I, and I well, I'm gonna go in three different directions here. But for me, teaching in high school was a way for me to learn how to be a father. Uh, there were a few years there with, when, uh, my son was, my ex took him away. Couldn't find him for a year or so. There's a lot of goofy stuff happened, and I wasn't father of the year material, but I made up for it in high school. And I, and I and I and I've said this to to my former students. Your help, not not when I was teaching them, but afterwards as I reflected on it, said you guys helped me to learn how to be a father. And what the, the main thing you learn is you listen. You shut up. You're there. Right. Send the message. It's all about health and safety. You can do anything that doesn't, as long as it doesn't jeopardize your health and safety, we're cool. And you want to be, so I mean I have a great relationship with my son now and his kids. Uh, they live down the road. But high school is, uh, it's, it's, and the thing about high school, as a great psychologist once said, the principal project of adolescence is the avoidance of loneliness.
0: Now, I feel, I feel like I feel like that's the principal project of of human existence. Period.
1: <laughs> I was going to make a, a you know ham handed connection to what's going on in this crazy world we're in this pandemic sized world is that we are uh, yeah well look this is this is my set point being away from people uh, uh, but and so you, you you spend time by yourself you're writing okay you can, I, I guess there are there are more social writers than i am i guess there must be you can't be less um, or so so this has been sort of an extreme version i've lived this extreme version of the pandemic now and it's it's creepy but familiar now at the same time i had this very public life playing cards around the world, teaching for a long time. I've been a board chair of a school. I've started a nonprofit that's uh, going well. So what people say is, oh, you're a hermit who gets out a lot. You know, you're a monk with a social life. Yeah, okay. Which is kind of true. I mean, I am sort of a split personality on many levels. But this project that I, that I started, the Simpson Literary Project, which is a, a partnership between Berkeley University, And a local foundation out here in Lafayette, the Library and Learning Center, is dedicated to promoting readers and writing, uh, reading and writing across the generations. We give a $50,000 prize to a mid-career author, uh, which I define as somebody who's emerged and still emerging. There are so many emerging writers' prizes. Come on. Yeah. What about the rest of us? You no, know? no. I, I
0: i read your uh, i read your essay in the Los Angeles re- Review of Books oh, about good. this. Yeah, and i i uh, it resonated with me as somebody who's in his 40s and working on a book. And you know, I feel like I I have no choice but to hope that yeah. I can be incredibly productive between like this age and like my 75th birthday, if I get there. You know, like I i the, the part of the reason why I want to take good care of myself is so I can hopefully get books done. I just got. I feel like I got busy with so many different projects between the ages of 30 and now uh including starting a family and getting married that so. it just hasn't been it hasn't been you know simple for me to get down to work but I'm hoping that that'll shift and I'll have an opportunity to have one of those uh careers where you know you publish a bunch of books and it does happen I think for people listening who you know might be worried about it because I think there is this pressure to do it while you're young and to, you know, I don't know, I could, I, I've felt some of that, but there are plenty of examples of, uh, you know, writers who have had wonderful careers who didn't get started until, you know, even their fifties or beyond.
1: Well, well, the thing is, you know, you do a lot in the world. I mean, you, this, this program that you do, the nervous breakdown, everything, you are so active and you're giving so much to the world. And that, I think that pays off. Uh, in ways that may be incalculable in the moment. But I find that the more you give, the more you get when it comes to you know, like this nonprofit, the Simpson Project, when I'm working with kids uh, from where we lead workshops around the Bay Area, I taught a course with Joyce Carol Oates, a memoir writing course, uh, and we published Simpsonistas, which is an anthology. I mean, all this kind of active stuff uh, – you know, at, at some point, my wife would say to me, "You know, get out of your damn office. Go, not join a board. <laughs> right. Get involved in the world." And uh, so, I, I find it immensely rewarding. And and I and I think when in your own work, what you're working on right now, this new book uh, that you just mentioned, you know, it wouldn't. So it's taken a little while. So what?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't but, know. I, I think about it sometimes. I think there are people who are just wired to be kind of monomaniacal and to be just all all writing their books all the time like that's it that's the only thing they want to do they want to just make books of their own and build their career and do that and that's that and right. i have you know i feel like i'm a little bit more scattered as a personality than that like not necessarily in a bad way i said there's a lot of different things i want to do but um i don't know i just think it's worth noting that there are many writers i think you can lose sight of it especially when you're looking at things retrospectively uh you just kind of think of them like a tony morrison or uh a bukowski. who started late Who yeah. started late well yeah. uh, charles bukowski published at what 51 was his right. first novel you know and um i don't know there's a million examples but uh i i think it's like you look back at their careers in retrospect you might not realize when the beginning really was and uh and I think more often is the case that you, you know you're told the story of some wonderkind who like came bursting out of the gates at age 22 with a masterpiece or whatever. Right. It's a, it's a uh, lot sexier story,
1: you know. Well, yeah. I mean, we're always telling stories of our lives, and there's a all narrative coherence when it comes to this seems to me illusory. We, you know, my first novel was when I was 50, but my first book came out when I was 24. What happened between those things?
0: I don't a lot right because yeah <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you've been sitting on your ass that's how i feel i'm like it's not like i just sat here i've been i've been very busy i feel like a lot has happened i went through a lot of
1: bottles of irish whiskey to get here <laughs> <laughs> right
0: um, and, so let's and let's talk about uh, the good family fitzgerald um you like DePrisco is italian you you know are you italian on both sides you got some irish blood too
1: no, no Irish, although I don't know how many people I, I can't count the number of people who are married marriage, uh, Italian and Irish at the same time, I you know, on either side. The Catholic. So my mother was Polish and uh, angry from, from Warsaw. Uh, my father's family is from Naples, outside Naples, actually, Avellino, actually, Fontana Rosa. And so, yeah, kind of a mixed marriage, but Fitzgerald's, uh, for me, uh, the first chapter, everything's a spoiler alert. Something bad happens in the first chapter. That becomes pretty clear. And the story goes on from there uh, with all the ramifications and implications, narrative and otherwise. But there is a mixed marriage there. Uh, Francesca and Anthony, Anthony Fitzgerald, who's kind of the prince of the family marries the uh, the francesca scalino and yeah irish and italians i mean what do you, you know, the you know the irish uh, invented talking but the italians invented never shutting up <laughs> <laughs> wow. they both think they're catholics but the hell if they can define what that means anymore Right. Uh, I mean, are they on the law or in the, are they on the church? Well, both, you know, are they criminals? Yeah, but they're also cops, uh, both obsessed about soccer. Uh, you know, only one has a cuisine, though. Yeah, don't, don't, well, this is not being recorded, right? But only, <laughs> <laughs> only the Italians have a cuisine anyway. So the Italians and the Irish, they're completely the same, totally different.
0: Right. And it's interesting, too, how you can be, like the intersection of, uh, like a religious life with a corrupt life, like how mm-hmm. of, how often that happens, and how somebody who can be like deeply corrupted can view themselves as being uh, like a very holy person. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like that. There's something just like utterly fascinating about that, like the 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 internal dynamics that would have to. Be firing in order for a person to like proceed through their life with that uh, opinion of themselves and to not have like to not be I guess at least outwardly racked with self doubt. Like I don't know if I could ever pull that off.
1: Well, so I realize that this is going to sound stupid as can be, but I realize that the good family Fitzgerald. I I've, I've been obsessed about the family my entire writing career and my entire life. Sure. What is a family? Well, the church is a kind of a family. The mob is a kind of a family. They're both dysfunctional. Uh, they're so th- they both come together in this novel. The uh, but a family, such a. And I, I know this is a subject near and dear to your heart. So, you know, what is a family? It's a mysterious entity. Finally, uh, if there are five people in the family, there might be twenty-five stories in that family. Uh, I don't. I can't do the math. But it's more than five. I know that. So these interrelationships between people, I mean, the church is uh, fascinating. I mean, the inner workings of, of the, the chancery and the inner workings of the mob, you know, I don't know if they're that different sometimes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of corruption in the church and a lot of great people in the church. Right. It does, a, it does, it does tremendous work uh, serving, feeding people giving people coats, educating them. And and could they have done a worse job around the pedophile crisis? I don't think so.
0: No. Well, and I think you could say the same thing about organized crime. I mean, I think we all like to point to the bad stuff, but, you know, there's a reason why uh, the mob, you know, or certain elements of the mob can be beloved by the rank and file of a community. You know, they, Uh, they can do a lot of charity work or, you know, you see this sometimes with a, uh, a head of state, you know, who's kind of mobbed up, who might have some sympathy for the poor. You think about, uh, what was his name? What was that? El Chapo, uh, yeah, the, yeah. uh, the Mexican drug Lord, like that dude was like a hero to the poor, uh, Absolutely. or to certain poor. So it gets complicated. You know, these things, there's a lot of different crossover and what I felt, cause I, you know, I was raised Catholic. I have a lot of, uh, I have an uncle who's a priest and a good one. Um, you know, he's one of the good guys, and I have aunts who were nuns, and I mean, wow. well, a very Southern Catholic family. And, uh, what I felt like throughout the pedophile, um, you know, crisis and all the uncovering of this, uh, of this crime is I, I felt uh, some sympathy for the good people caught up in the middle of it all because of the mistrust that suddenly, um, you know that that all of that fostered you know how do you trust any priest anymore and to be a good one trying to do things for the right reason and to just be of service and help and to suddenly be you know catching all these looks you know it's got to it's got to be hard
1: yeah it's okay to have bias these days against a catholic and a catholic priest it's sort of reminiscent to the early 20th century when catholics and italians and the irish were you know they were uh, dis- castigated. There was a, it was a smear to call someone an Irishman or an Italian or a Catholic. So, yeah, the, now in this novel, the, the, one of the leading characters is a very handsome uh, priest, one of the sons of the Fitzgerald, Philip Fitzgerald. And he has a, it's a long story. It's a complicated story what happened with him. Uh, but, and his fa- he has a very close relationship with his father, who's, who's clearly on the other side. Uh, But they're close in a way that an Italian, I mean, an Irish-American family can be. That is, they hate each other and love (laughs) each other at the same
0: time. (laughs) Right, 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 right. You'd do anything for your family or you'd kill them all. Depends. Well, I I can't think of anybody who would be better suited to write a novel like this than you, knowing what I now know about your upbringing and the exposure you've had in your life to – You know, both the inner workings of the church and what it's like to find meaning in that, but also to have exposure to, um, like, you know, organized crime and just crime in general. Um, It It, makes sense that you would, and and then it would make sense, too, that you would channel this into, like, a big family saga. Well, yeah, and it took me a long time. This book
1: uh, was written, I don't know, started eight, nine years ago. I published three books in the meantime as I was working on it. I just kept returning. I couldn't shake it. It kept changing with well, the story. kept getting bigger. It kept getting smaller. You know what it's like. You know, right. you, 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 one day, oh, that was brilliant what I wrote yesterday. Oh, it's crap. It's got to go. Well, this is a this is a rabbit hole. This this uh, plot point. But no, this one isn't. So, so for me, what what you're saying about maybe being positioned. There's a thing you can do when you're when you're betting sports, and that is. You can take one side of a bet, and then you can take the other side when the line moves. So you win when both teams, whatever the score is, you're going to win. That's called middling. And it's, it's a high art to know how to do that. But it's uh, it's what every uh, every book understands, because they're middling all the time. Every bookmaker is uh, still uh, Putting, you know, they're they're shaking off their own bets when it goes too too much on one one team or another. Anyway, so middling my life has sort of been the, the theme, and you know, in my but now it seems clear what I'm doing. Uh, I work with the nonprofit and then then writing uh, a lot of books left to left to write before uh, still have a lot of still want things to do still want to still want to be able to finish a few more books before the great divide
0: do you uh do you plan your career uh in terms of like uh preconceiving like do you know what the books are that you have to write or do you just have a general sense that you got more in you i have
1: you know i could say i could say both answers are true Um, i know i I i have several projects that you know, what's interesting is for me is I see these discrete projects. Oh, this is this, this is this. And then I say, wait a second. This is the one project. This is all together. Uh, so you bring it all together. Uh, so, no, I don't have a, I don't have a, I can't outline. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to write today. Uh, it's a pretty organic process. Go with what I got. Uh, try to leave it all on the field, as we say. Uh, what else what what's the alternative, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And what about the uh the you, you said the this nonprofit, you've talked about it, but you, the name of it is is Simpson?
1: The Simpson Literary Project, what, yeah.
0: What's the significance of Simpson? So
1: Barclay and Sharon Simpson, very uh, very important philanthropists in the in the Bay Area. Uh Barclay invented uh structural fastening agents. So you've driven on his freeways. And so he invented the Simpson uh, uh, Strong Tie Company and gave away a ton of money. And it was all about, as he said, never forget that philanthropy begins with social injustice. A great man. And Sharon, his wife, he, he died a few years ago. He would have been 99 on Monday, Mark. Uh, great man. Uh, University of California is very indebted to him. For the museum, the art museum, as well as the football stadium, <laughs> and lots of buildings, and and they've been supporters of the project. One of the, one of the main supporters, I mean, Barker's. I'd say long ago. So Sharon is still very involved, and loves Sharon, one of the one of the great human beings on the on the planet. So that's the that's where the name came from, and. Uh, so we've been running
0: with that and just as long as it's not OJ, you know, that's all I'm no, right. I, just oh, to, I just wanted to rule out OJ.
1: Oh my God. No one's ever said that.
0: The OJ no, Simpson no literary Bronco. foundation.
1: No Bronco involved here. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. Although I did see him one time outside vans there. trying to flirt with my wife. Okay. Outside Vons. where? What's that? Vans. Vons. Vons.
0: There in uh, that supermarket
1: there in L.A. No shit. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he was Please trying.
0: When, when was this pre? Was this pre murder or, or? Oh pop-
1: yeah, pre pre murder. He's yeah. huh. a
0: slave. Damn. So what? Okay. So you uh, raised in uh, the Bay Area, high school in Berkeley at this Catholic school. Then you go to Cal.
1: No, I went to Syracuse for college. Oh, you did. I just oh. wanted, wanted to get out of town.
0: Got it.
1: Yeah, you know, the only it's where I got a scholarship, so that was that's all I needed, and uh, I, I had no college uh, counseling or anything like that. I just said, well, I just want to get the hell out of town, so I went up there. And got very involved in politics, like I say, and uh, it was it was interesting to take over the administration building, you know, I did my first appearances on TV, uh, explaining what was going on. Uh, but I remember when we took over the building, it was a snowy. It's a snowy night, yeah. And so there we are. Of course, you have some idiots there. But, you know, you have all these ideals. You know. but, by the way, before I forget, I love the interview you did with Tim O'Brien.
0: Yeah, is, that was a is, good one, right?
1: That was, he is such a stud.
0: Yeah, he's a
1: badass. Uh, he's, you know, I, I. he and I were were breadlow Fellows one year. So we had rooms next to each other. Uh, I love the guy. And I've taught him a hundred times what he has to say about Vietnam is so profound. I use something from one of his books as an epigraph to, to the good Family* Fitzgerald. Anyway, he's great. Where was I going with the South the Protest? So you have all these ideals. Hell, if I can remember what we were doing and hell, if I can remember thinking, wait, well, hey, what's going to happen if I get arrested? What am I going to get expelled? What's going to never cross my mind? No, this is We got to end this damn war. Yeah. We got to we got to do this. So there we are sitting around, you know, the steering committee, and the chancellor walks in five o'clock in the morning, lights up a cigarette, and says, uh, "Well, you're all expelled. Okay, unless you can figure out a way for me to save face." Okay, this is an interesting move. My first, my first real entree into real politics. Okay. We can we can both win here. So we devised a strategy for him to make a statement where he respected what we were doing. And he said, well, I'll rescind the expulsions. But don't do this again. It was a great moment. I liked the guy. I had a good relationship with him. But it you know, was a good
0: moment. I, 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 you know what it brings to mind? It, like, it brings to mind this concept of like half-loaf politics and... Um... I think of it now, you know, especially during the like the heat of the primary season where you have these competing impulses uh on the left between like wanting like kind of revolutionary change now versus maybe more incremental change or more you know a more moderate approach and then you think of it in the context of uh, the Vietnam War, you know, and you have the benefit of hindsight and the perspective of history obviously the war did need to end obviously you were right you know uh, that was the correct view and it was uh, a disaster um i sometimes feel uncertain about uh half loaf politics like which i guess maybe there's a part of me that i is inclined to like i'm kind of a okay well let's just try to like the, some people believe this some people believe that let's try to meet in the middle but then there are certain instances where it's like actually no like we should duke this out and like the, we need some justice. Like the good, the good guys got to prevail. Do you know what I'm saying? Like trying oh, to yeah. trying to yeah. navigate that and trying to find some sort of uh, clarity on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so all the Confederate flag stuff and all racism. I mean, how do you how do you modulate a racist position?
0: Right. How can you be
1: less racist? Yeah, you know, we got a different starting point we have to go with. But with, with Vietnam, the war, my God, yeah, well, everybody knew people who went to war, um, and. And it, there, was no, there was no justification that could get through my brain. And I remember when the wall, Maya Lin's wall, the, uh, the Vietnam War Memorial, was built. And I remember my, my son was in college uh, in, in D.C. at the time. And we walked along that wall, and it just knocked me out. All the names, all the names of all the people who died. this war and i had and i just said is this ever going to matter are people ever going to remember this and the question i think it's still an open question we seem not to learn i think all i got to do is point to what's going on in our country today
0: well i was gonna i was just gonna say covid you know when's the when's the memorial going to go up for the people who needlessly died from this virus and then uh, the other thing that comes to mind is this common thought that i think can can uh, occur to a writer being like you know what everything's already been said and uh there's a great quote and i i can't remember who said Shh. it but it was a writer who basically was like yeah and everybody forgot so we need to say it again <laughs> <laughs> or like no nobody paid attention you know the first 500 times so let's uh, let's repeat ourselves over and over again like that's kind of what it takes because i think uh you know generationally uh, stuff gets lost in the shuffle i think I feel like history is a very poorly taught or undertaught subject sure, in our school sure. system. And, uh, you know, I feel undereducated in history and I don't know, I feel like I'm always kind of scrambling to remind myself of, uh, what the hell happened. And, and if you don't have that lens, then it's, you know, it's not going to be any great secret why we keep, uh, repeating the same mistakes.
1: Well, don't forget Homer, uh, was always praising the old days. <laughs> yeah it's not like it was in the old days and he's writing the odyssey and the Iliad right? right and he's he's celebrating the past like now it's all bullshit but it's you know we had real heroes back in the day so I mean the question you always ask when you teach the the Iliad or the odyssey is are we still are we still on the fields before Troy are we still there and the answer is yes we're still there we're not we need to figure out a way to do something different. And so, so, art, writing, music, I think this gives us some passageway for some people to learn. Although, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to make a big argument about what you can learn from, from reading. Um, I think that people who want to teach you stuff are usually explainers. You know, I'm not big on explaining. I think art is closer to music than it is to, uh, you know, an Excel spreadsheet of principles. Uh, but we, but when it comes, and you can see, I mean, I'm big on uh, teaching for the purpose of promoting empathy. I get it, um, and and I think it's pretty verified that people do, if they do read stories, storytelling is is something that'll that'll change your life. If, if you're receptive to it, and if you're taught it well, so, so I'm talking all over the place, on both sides of the question, but I think it's our only hope. So the question is, you know, what's gonna, what kind of work is gonna come out of this pandemic? Is it gonna be, yeah, what's it gonna be? Do we have a great nine eleven novel yet? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I was, don't know.
0: I've had this conversation a lot recently, wondering if this uh, pandemic and the social isolation of it, and just kind of the existential intensity of it is going to occasion the writing of or the making of great art, not just literary art, but are people, cause I kind of feel this sort of like uh, the way that I'm sort of dealing with it is just to get focused and stay busy and try to get shit done as much as I can, you know, while also trying to juggle other responsibilities. But, um, I've had friends of mine who are just like, no, it'll be no different. You know, it'll be, uh, it'll be just like normal times some people write some good books and, and then i've had other friends who sort of feel like like i don't know if you saw this going around the internet but it was like oh you know like when when the pandemic first started it was like isaac newton you know yeah. discovered the laws of gravity during quarantine for the bubonic plague or whatever it was you know and king kind lear of a, yeah, yeah. it's like a way of like, yeah shakespeare wrote king lear it's like a Kind of like a, a way of uh, like offering comfort to people who are suddenly facing the prospect of having to be socially isolated. It's like this is the time to write your masterpiece. <laughs> you know,
1: like. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on, on that. That you know what this pandemic has done. I think it, it, it's sort of a monkish thing. Maybe we're all you know. Maybe the best of us are going to become kind of monks. That you know, we pay attention. We can look at stuff. We can look at the natural world with fresh eyes. We can see it for For this amazing spectacle that we have before us, that's one way to look at it um, the I think the the other way to look at it is that we that it's about it's not only about attention but it's about um intention and we're uh, what do we want what do we intend to do with the rest of our lives? I mean we found ourselves. Uh, I mean, this is sort of I think I said this already, but, you know, this isolation is sort of my set point as a writer, except when I'm leading a board meeting.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, uh, not, not the, except for the board meeting part. But I, I think a lot of writers are probably better prepared and more predisposed for this style of living than the average bear.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and so so what happens as a result of, of this to our, with our work? I don't know. I don't know. I think it'll be different. I think that there's the uncertainty. Well, that's another thing. What does a writer live with all day long? Uncertainty. Mm. Uncertain about what the next damn sentence is going to be. So we have this radical uncertainty about our uh, vulnerability before this uh, virus. And we have an uncertainty with regard to, well, what the hell's going on in the country? Maybe I'll go to Missouri and get in a pool. With a bunch of strangers, so that's a that's a plan.
0: What a great freaking plan, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, like, okay. So, a couple of thoughts. First of all, it's like you know, how's it going to change us as writers, and what's it going to do to the kind of work that we produce. But another thought that I've had, and it's a it's a hopeful thought, is that maybe this pandemic and the social isolation that it has occasioned is going to turn people more inward and get people reading more. That seems like a like like at least some kind of possibility. I can feel. Uh, that my reading has picked up like I'm always reading but I feel like during this period I've done more than normal um I've also noticed that like my habits of reading have shifted a little bit I'm like more in the direction of fiction now Mm -hmm. which I sort of jokingly attribute to like the dystopian hellscape that we're living in it's like okay time to enter a fantasy world for you know (laughs) let's go let's go into fiction for uh, an hour and like try to you know turn my attention away from whatever reality is and um you know, so there's that side of it. And then there's also the, you know, you mentioned Missouri, just as an example. You know, I think if you're paying attention at all to the news, you're seeing pictures of people like over Memorial Day weekend in these huge clusters and nobody's really doing anything to try to mitigate against the spread of the virus. There are few people who are even wearing face masks. You know, it's just like same old, same old. And uh, I worry when it comes to this hope for some kind of positive change that the the uh, impact of the pandemic is like too fragmented. It's not, it's like happening in these pockets, you know, and it's happening to certain um, certain uh, subsets of the population with greater intensity. And I'm wondering if, and then you have, of course, like the different news media takes on it and the information silos that that people live in. It's like, how do we have like a unified civic experience anymore in this world, Um, you know, considering the way we get our information. Like, I wonder if there's going to be anything outside of something truly like overwhelmingly catastrophic that could have that kind of uniform impact and um, could create that kind of clarifying moment, you know, if it, if it even could happen.
1: Well, that's, that's so that resonates a lot for me, uh, but you know, I'm re- reminded of one of the great books written about the, uh, uh, the pandemic. by Giovanni Boccaccio, the Decameron, which is written in the 1400s, and so this is when the plague has hit Florence. Bodies are on the streets, and he takes ten millennials out to the country, where the air is is going to save them, and they spend the next uh, ten days telling each other a hundred stories. So the first line of Boccaccio's Decameron is first, – the very first line is the human thing, the essentially human thing, is to have compassion for those who are afflicted. The essentially human thing is to have compassion for those who are afflicted. So there's the burden for the author. There it is. And, and, he, and it's a fantastic book. And these stories that cover, run, run the gamut, love passion betrayal heroism it's it's just a spine-tingling book and what's it called the decameron and uh, giovanni boccaccio
0: it's a great book and it holds up like the translation oh my god oh
1: yeah yeah oh yeah yeah uh, i've talked about it a little bit uh in public and people read if you I mean, usually in a graduate school, so you have to be Italian. I hear from my Italian friends. Oh, yeah. Okay, fine. Got it. Gotcha. Uh, But it's true, isn't it? Isn't that it? Isn't that the essentially human thing, to have compassion for those who are afflicted?
0: You would hope. I feel like maybe it's lacking in certain quarters. I think that people, you know, these people who are like marching into state houses with automatic weapons strapped to their body, like shouting in the faces of security guards, might be, uh, you know, missing the point. <laughs> uh,
1: right. So how do we do? How do we? How do we jive? How does? How does this correlate for us? I mean, I, I can only watch so much news. I mean, I've restricted right. myself. It just—it's enervating. It's, it's, it's depressing as
0: hell. Yeah. And I think too, Uh, like this is the exception and rather the rule, you know, rather than the rule, like the people who do that sort of stuff, I I don't think, uh, I don't think they represent the majority. I think most people have a clue. I think that, uh, and I think too, in defense of like, you know, people of general, general good intent, this is an odd and deeply abnormal situation to be in. Like, I think it, it works against basic human nature to ask people to be antisocial and to keep away from one another and to not show effect like physical affection or shake hands, you know, all of these behavioral changes. Like I, I, am sympathetic. I, I think it is difficult to do. Um, so I, on some level, I understand people's urge, you know, urge to get back to normal or whatever normal rep is, you know, however it's represented in their minds. But, um, you know, you also have to be thinking of people in nursing homes and people with disabilities and vulnerable populations who could uh, who could die because you don't want to wear a face mask or whatever, you know.
1: Yeah, and I was sick for five weeks when this happened. Uh, I don't know if I had COVID-19 or not, wouldn't give me a test, uh, but I felt pretty miserable.
0: For, now, five, for five weeks? Oh, yeah. Was it? An, were you symptomatic in uh, ways that oh, uh, align yeah, with COVID?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to, get, want to get one of these serology tests when they finally solve the problem find out ahead. On the other hand, you're not going to know if they have immunity anyway. Uh, it's still an imperfect. Uh, there's so much mystery about this virus that uh, we don't know. But yeah, it was was not a great experience. You know, one day I felt okay. Next two days awful of in bed. Uh, the most I couldn't—it's hard to concentrate. Yeah, it seemed like uh, the most uh, that I was really—I couldn't read fiction. All I could read were emails, and unfortunately, there were hundreds of emails asking me to, <laughs> to watch something. Like, oh God, please, please, another time. I can't do it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we—you know—I I, I feel for my friends who own restaurants. Right. What the hell going to happen with restaurants?
0: Yeah, I was thinking—I the- I was thinking this morning. I was like. There's going to have to be like especially in a town like Los Angeles where the weather's so good like we're going to have to try to like actually physically alter the real estate so that the seating can be outdoors more often. I, like what are what else are you going to do? And I mean you got to if you're in New York or you're in some city, you're going to have to just take over the sidewalks and put tables out there so that people can have some space. Like I Otherwise, what? It's going to be takeout only. Who's going to want to go sit in some tiny little uh, cafe? You know,
1: or some or these huge corporate chains of you know phony Italian restaurants. Um, that's that's the that's the fear I have. That uh, well, the main fear I have is all these people I know who lost their jobs. Right. Uh, cooks, uh, waiters. Where are they going to get their money? How do they? This is not going to work out.
0: No, and I think we're just beginning to feel the fallout that's the, that's like one of the delayed reaction parts of it that 's got me worried is that i don 't think the, the the brunt of the impact economically has begun to be felt. I think people have been sort of hanging on by their fingernails and waiting and hoping for things to sort of go back to the way they were and The longer it goes on, the harder it's going to be to kind of maintain. That illusion, you know. I think you're going to have to see some radical changes, and there are going to be some major uh, disruptions economically, and just a lot of suffering, unfortunately. And I don't know. I mean, I read an article in the New York Times uh, about a week ago about Italy, which you know is kind of a, it's like a preview of coming attractions for us because they went through a lot of what we're going through, you know, about a month a month or two right. in advance, and a lot of their uh, food service workers, like waiters and maitre d's and chefs and all that kind of stuff they have actually gone gone back out into the country and taken jobs in agrarian huh. uh businesses as like fruit and vegetable pickers um you know that's like because a because it's safer you know you can be out outdoors and have some space and be breathing fresh air and not necessarily be subjecting yourself to illness but also because it's the only show in town they don't have tourists right. they don't have the normal restaurant crowd so what are you going to do so maybe you'll see that like maybe there will be some sort of shift back into you know more agrarian society like who knows but uh, you know i think to myself sometimes like wow like now is the time if we had leadership that was worth a shit for some really radical and cool experimenting um you know it would help a lot if we had people in charge who were good thinkers and had some I don't know had the wherewithal to sort of lead the charge on this stuff even in the absence of that i think it's probably going to happen just as a matter of necessity and i think that's going to you know a lot of times the the great entrepreneurial ideas are born in times of strife because times of strife force people into creative thinking mode but um you know it's it's going to be rough and i don't know exactly what it's going to look like i think it's going to be a long haul
1: yeah, I don't see any easy solutions. I mean, I've opened restaurants, and I understand it's such—you know—the margins are so bare to begin with, and it's so complicated to hire people anyway. So, what are you offering people now? Uh, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine that most restaurants are are going to make it. Uh, certainly, they're, they're not going to. Hey, when Eleven Madison Park in New York City, you know, the most famous restaurant in the country, says we may never open again. Okay. Danny Meyer says that okay, we got a problem. Right. Or, or the New York Times today was a, a, an op-ed piece about when you're going to get on an airplane. That's a damn good question. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Brad, what are you going to get on an airplane? I'm in no hurry. And honestly, <laughs> like, I mean, that's one of the environmental upsides. Uh, yeah. Of all of this, and like, you know, something I've noticed is that y- you know people in general or m- most of us and probably all of us at certain points, but some some more than others, you know, this busyness, this constant socializing, um, like just kind of being being busy, Often, oftentimes not without any kind of real purpose. Like, oh, I've got to get on a plane and go do this, and I've got to go visit this person, and I've got to do this, and we have a dinner here. Like, I get it. Like, people are trying to live their lives and have fun, but um, I've noticed in people, uh, a like on some, in some ways, like a reevaluation of how much of this was necessary to begin with. Like, wow, we could have just done this via zoom. I didn't need to get on a plane and, you know, burn all this jet fuel to get to some city across the country to sit down in a conference room, you know, that kind of thing. I have also noticed, uh, especially as this has lingered that certain of my friends who might be more hyper-social than others have had maybe a harder time, um, I think that people can use, you know, this kind of like uh busyness and activity as a way of trying to sidestep, having to kind of deal with their inner life. Yes. And I think that the pandemic has forced people to maybe sit there and have to suffer some exposure <laughs> to their yeah. own, their own thinking mind and their own feelings. And it's not an entirely comfortable experience. And I think it can be hard for people. I think that's driving a lot of a lot of this sort of rebellion you know of people being like i just want to go to a bar i want to go get in a pool and you know float around in an inner tube and drink a bud light it's like yeah i get it you know like these are the ways we sort of create static for ourselves and some separation from our own suffering and um but as you were saying a second ago it's good time to read a book (laughs) that's right yeah i mean i don't know there's i i i don't want to sound too uh I don't wanna sound like a dick because it's not easy for people and it's not easy for me either. But I think like as writers, I gotta believe there are a lot of writers right now who are just going like, I was ready for this. (laughs) You know, this this is what I do every day, people. I sit around in the quiet, you know, in the silence of my own mind and, you know, um, try try to sift through the wreckage. And I don't think it's a necessarily natural mode for most of us. And that's why, you know, the writerly temperament is like some odd subset of the human population.
1: Well, that's why it's a vocation. that's why it's a calling which is very different from professional career. There's a I mean, if, you, if you if you calculated you know your profit margin on on by word by what you publish what well, it, it would terrify you right <laughs> yeah. um, so which goes to the other thing which is I think scary is that people you know the market has been, the stock market has bounced back what but the, fuck? the stocks I don't yeah, the stock it. market is not the economy. No, It's a, a very simple thing about the stock market. I mean, I know people in the investment world. It's a very simple why the market goes up. People want to buy stocks because they're cheap enough for them. And when the market goes down, they want to sell them because they're not worth it. It's very simple. You know, when, I, when you read Motley Fool or Barron's or some of these financial, they have an explanation. Yeah, explanations are always bullshit. They, yeah. No one can explain why this happens. No. Uh, but so, I also, yeah, the economy I, I, sucks. 40 million people are out of work. Right, that's terrible. Right, and people are making money. Billionaires are making money. Millionaires are making money.
0: Right, that's that's crazy. It's completely crazy, and I feel like it's you know this this dichotomy has grown in um in how stark it is you know over the past over my lifetime you know because it can get to feeling that the stock market is kind of this like private club for people who are sitting on a bunch of capital and they trade amongst one another. It's like sort of like, it's like the, it's like the market for really expensive art or something, you know, it's like that market, you know, I know it has its fluctuations, but if you're in rare enough air financially, there's always going to be somebody who wants to buy a Picasso. And it's almost a feeling like that, you know, like the stock market's just this game that all these people who work on wall street and who have a bunch of money play and everybody else is like the quote unquote real economy. And that's a not so great place to be you know <laughs> right
1: right 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 right, uh,
0: so it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see you know how how things develop and uh you know i, I just hope that you're uh it sounds like you're doing well, I mean you came out of a five week illness and you're you're back at it, and you're able to suffer through my questioning for an hour so uh, <laughs> That's a good sign. That's a good sign yeah. that your health has returned.
1: <laughs> yeah, I haven't killed my wife once, and she hasn't killed me once. There the you whole go. Time. So there you go. The, the dogs are still here. They're still uh, having fun, chasing rats and squirrels, and so we have a nice day. Can't complain. Uh, I, I worry like crazy about what's going to happen in the next election.
0: Yeah, yeah, Ugh. dude. I, it's working my last nerve. I, I just, uh, just uh, you know. I'm just going to try try to stay hopeful and I'm going to try to stay active, you know, and really get involved especially as we get into the summer and into the, you know, the early fall, but it feels like it feels like it like it's all the chips are in the middle of the table if we're going to try to end things with a uh, a gambling analogy, which is kind of where we started, you know. It just feels like all chips in the middle of the table and I hope people realize that that's the case and I don't think that I don't think it's a matter of opinion. I really don't. I think it's a matter of fact that it's all on the line, and uh, if it doesn't go the way I want it to go, I would say we're sort of fucked. And I don't like to speak in, you know, such. Gloomy, I know where you're going with that, gloomy yeah. terms, but it certainly feels like we're fucked if things don't if things don't go the way we need them to. That would be my 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 uh, analysis.
1: Right, and the funny thing is somehow he's impervious to criticism. I don't I don't get it. I don't get why he, he can't lay a glove on that son of a bitch. I just don't get it.
0: It's volume. It's volume. You know, I think it's like the old autocratic uh, playbook. You know, you just overwhelm. you kind of flood the zone. You know, it's like when there are so many offenses of so many different kinds, so many criminal infractions and, um, y- you know, uh, scandals and then which one do you pick like you just after a while i think it it creates a numbing effect and that i think explains as much as it can um you know why it's hard for anything to stick the other thing i would say is that you know the guy was a guy's been a, a sort of a personality in our culture whose entire brand is sort of based on um imperviousness you know, like like the whole brand is like, I'm so rich and so privileged. Which he isn't. Which he isn't, but <laughs> he like that's right. the brand. You know, the brand right. is like you can't, like I don't have to deal with consequences the way that uh, most people do. And, you know, on the surface you would think, well, wow, fuck this guy. You know, who what kind of asshole thinks he's he's better than everybody else? But I think one of the things that's laid, been laid bare um, by the past four years is the fact that that has actually kind of an attractive uh that's kind of attractive to a lot of people you know this idea of like wow imagine being able to just say whatever you want and do and do whatever you want and nobody can lay a finger on you you know i think
1: that's the most intelligent explanation i've ever heard for to explain his popularity
0: yeah but but you know
1: what howard stern said about He said the kind of people who support him are the exact people he hates
0: Right. No. Yeah. He hates everybody pretty much except for himself. But and maybe he hates himself, too. I think he. actually. Oh, my Earth.
1: God. I think he does. Yeah. So what do we do in this kind of in this time of really war uh, on many levels, political and otherwise? You know, we're, what's the place of art? What's the place of literature? Well, it's it's got to there's got to be a place for that. There's got to be a place for reflection. There's got to be a place for beauty. There's got to be a place for a wonderful sentence there's got to be a place for a character you love otherwise we're just in the shit all the time we we need we need we need great writers
0: more than ever i think that's a great place for us to wrap and uh it has been excellent to talk with you congratulations on the publication of the book i'm glad you're well and i'm glad we had a you know had the opportunity to shine a light on uh, the good family fitzgerald Uh, in the book club this month so appreciate it and uh, hope we get to cross paths in person someday
1: that'd be great brad it was wonderful talking to you you're good man
0: okay that's joseph deprisco his novel is called the good family fitzgerald out there now from rare bird books it was the official may pick of the nervous breakdown book club you can find joseph deprisco on the internet at deprisco.com you can follow him on twitter his handle there is at joseph deprisco once again, the novel is called The Good Family Fitzgerald. It's available from Rare Bird Books. Go get it. If you're interested in joining the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, just go to Nervousbreakdown.com and uh, click on Book Club in the menu bar. Sign up. It's a good thing. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview the authors on this program. It's a holistic, cultural experience that is very nourishing. If you would like to support this show, I hope you'll do that. This is a free podcast. More than 650 episodes, every single one of them is offered freely. Your support makes a difference. Support the show. If you want to do that, go to patreon.com slash Patreon.com slash pod. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at other Letters at other Let me know what you think. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available where apps are available, and it is free. So I will probably have another episode for you on Sunday. I believe my guest will be, uh, let me see here, is it Genevieve Hudson? Is that what's coming down the pike? Something like that. I think it'll be Genevieve Hudson. If not, it will be uh, Wayne Kustenbaum. He's coming up, too. Just got to put it all together. Friendly reminder to register to vote. Get yourself situated. If you need a mail-in ballot, absentee, whatever it is, go to your state's uh, you know voter registration website, read up, get it done. Wear a mask. Take care of yourselves, take care of other people, especially vulnerable people. Honor the social contract, be kind. Do I need to mention this? I probably do.